This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Anadelia Romo, who is the author of the book Selling Black Brazil, Race, Nation, and Visual Culture in Salvador Bahia, published by the University of Texas Press. Dr. Romo, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Reagan. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. And I'm really excited to talk about your book, uh, Selling Black Brazil. It's a history that examines the role of images in shifting ideas around race in Brazil. So I wanted to just start with a question we normally ask, which is if you could tell us about yourself and your background and how you came to write this book and become interested in race, visual culture and blackness in Brazil. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of a lot of people get into the history of Brazil without any prior connection to it in their lives, and that was the case with me too. So i I grew up in Austin, um, Texas, and had much more of a connection to Mexico. Um, my father's family is all Mexican American, and so we would we don't have family that we visit in Mexico, but we still have connections there. And so we would go and visit in Mexico on vacations and things. Um, So I had a connection to Latin America, but, but really no knowledge of Brazil. And it was not until college that I had the, the lucky, the lucky um, fortune of having a visiting professor from Brazil who was just there for one semester, um, Joao Hayes who is a scholar of Bahia and Bahian history. And he came and did a one semester class on the history of Brazil. And at the end of the semester, he put his phone number and his email on the chalkboard and said, if anyone comes to Brazil, please contact me. <laughs> and I'm sure that he didn't imagine that anybody would. I think I might be the only person who did. Um, but I got into graduate school for Latin American history and thought I would do Chilean history and made like a, a last minute decision that I, I could not see myself in in Santiago for the rest of my life um, doing research there. Switched over to Brazil and called up uh, Joao Hayes and said, here I am, I'm here. <laughs> um, and and that kind of began uh, some of my some of my research and and of course my my Portuguese um, as I as I began it in, in grad school. Um, and as a, as a grad student, I had a a very different project, which was that I was interested in, I was interested in inequalities in literacy. Um, and I wanted to explore how 
those were tied to racial ideologies. Um, and so I was going to do a comparison between Sao Paulo, which had very high rates of literacy, um, very low uh, rates of, of Afro-descendants in its population, um, compared to Bahia, which had very high rates of illiteracy um, and a very high proportion of uh, African descendants in its, in its population. And so um, my hunch, of course, was that I was going to be able to prove that there was a racist school system in place that was discriminatory and that was acting to keep um, Afro-Bayans especially out of the school system and, and away from literacy. And my, I, my hunch is, I think, certainly true, but I could not prove it with a paper trail in the archives. Um, and so I ended up writing a um, writing a book about racial ideology in Bahia instead. So I, I had to I had to kind of drop the the educational inequality part, but I think that's that's part of that's part of the heart of my interest is understanding where inequality comes from, um, and so I think with uh, the first book, I wanted to understand how how do ideas about race get created in very regional ways and very specific ways in a variety of different places, um, and then. After I finished that book, that book, I took a deep breath and said, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a break from Salvador. I'm not going, <laughs> I'm not going back to the archives there. They're, they're pretty difficult to work in." Um, and part of the reason I couldn't prove any discrimination in the educational system was that there were very few records from the educational system at all. I mean, they would just bring me these boxes filled with um, papers that spanned, you know, fifty years. Uh, just all thrown together in a, in a box. Um, no particular order, no particular system. And um, so the only thing I could prove about the educational system in Bahia was that it was very disorganized and, and dysfunctional. Um, and so for the second book, I thought, well, there's, I had small children and, and uh, I wasn't going to be able to go to Salvador and sit there and ask them to give me a box and sit and look through a unlabeled disorganized box and then ask them to give me another box and sit and see what's in that box too. Um, and so I had to be more systematic and strategic about my research. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I ended up looking at these, at these tourist guides that I focus on is um, that they were printed works. And so for, for a lot of them, I could, I could access them in the United States. I could, I could reach them. Um, and so they, I, I want to be explicit about that, those, those strategies, because I think a lot of people with families doing research, it's hard to figure out how to do that. How do you, how do you create a research program that's sustainable if you have a family um, and you're not a grad student who can sit in an archive unencumbered for a year? Um, and so that was kind of the solution I came up with. And, and, and I'm very happy I did because I ended up really loving the project. And um but it was it was it was a kind of uh, circuitous uh, route that that took me to this this particular this particular book and this particular project. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, and that's an amazing story about Professor Heese in the in the beginning. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I don't know how I found the notebook that I had the email in, but I was I was a very organized student. <laughs> I'm imagining you showing up in Brazil, like I'm here, and he's like, "Oh my god, yeah, who are you?" 
Oh my God, that's great. That's right. So I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Salvador as a city. So the book centers on the city of Salvador, which is, of course, in the northeast of Brazil. It's known, as you just said, to have this large black population. It's called like the Black Rome or, you know, Africa and the Americas. And I think it's known in Brazil as well as outside of Brazil for those features. And then you also talked about these tourist guides that you used, which are central to where you uh, found the images of Salvador for the book. And so how did you um, choose Salvador? Can you choose, can you tell us about Salvador as a city and how it figures into the into the book. And can you tell us any more about these tourist guides that you used, which were the central sources for the book? Yeah, I mean Salvador for for anyone who's been there, it's it's really a, a remarkable city. It's really a unique city. Um, it was a city that was Brazil's first capital, um, and it became the the early center for Brazil's uh, slaving economy. And um, so we know already that Brazil brings in almost 5 million enslaved Africans. Um, but Salvador was one of the two most important uh, ports. So Rio is the most important, but Salvador comes, comes after that. Uh, and it was in Salvador that that Brazil's sugar economy de- developed first. And uh, that was the focus of the, the early colony was producing sugar in large quantities for export markets uh, in Europe and, and across the Americas. Um, so, so Salvador began, you know, was, was really fashioned around slavery and was so dependent on slavery um, that the, European part of the population remained very small. Um, and so one of the, the the important things about Salvador is that it always had a, a black majority. Um, and that was seen in different ways over time. Um, and eventually the capital moves to Rio because Rio becomes more dynamic and sugar, sugar begins to decline, both in its importance within Brazil and also the, the soil begins to be exhausted. Um, and so the capital shifts to Rio in 1763 and Salvador becomes kind of this um, epicenter of decline. So the, the plantations are declining, the city's port becomes less important, all of the energy turns to Rio. And so by the, by the late 19th century, when slavery finally ends, um, in 1888, and that's the that's the you know the absolute latest abolition of the Americas. Um, when slavery ends, Salvador's a little bit this this decadent, declining sugar zone um, that's never really recovered its its energy or its glory. Um, and so, to some degree, there's this search throughout the 20th century for how to get Salvador back into the nation's center, how to, how to build Salvador's reputation back up as important to Brazil. And, um, and the answer in the end is going to be that, that Salvador is going to bill itself as the center of Brazil's black soul. Um, if, if, if Brazil is a kind of 
multiracial democracy, which is what it builds itself up to be over the 20th century, then Salvador is going to hold all of that blackness and it's going to hold all of that African um, heritage and it's going to preserve it in its purest form for the rest of Brazil. And so that's, that's what the end result is. That's what ends up happening. But the story of how that happens, I think, is, is the really interesting and surprising part um, because we have at the time of abolition, at the early part of the century, we have a profoundly racist society which really doesn't want to acknowledge that black majority, um, which doesn't allow that black majority to enter into politics you know, through, through various ways, whether it's literacy, because you need literacy to, to access the vote, um, whether it's the job market, whether it's it's penal codes. Um, we have all kinds of ways in which this decadent white elite is really trying to hold on to its power and, and prevent any um, challenge from, from uh, anyone else. Um, so, so it's a surprise then that that Salvador ends up celebrating its blackness. Um, and I think the, the question of why that happens goes back ultimately to the changing racial ideology that I trace in my first book. Um, but I think also goes back to, in powerful ways, the tourist economy that Salvador begins to build for itself. And as part of that, um, this iconography that begins to be associated with these tourist guides uh, over the course of time. Um, and so I had, I had, um, I had begun to, I'd begun to look at these guides in my first book. And I, it was a kind of a strange side note where I'd think, huh, that's a strange, that's a strange tourist guide. It's 350 pages and it, doesn't have any hotels and it um, has all of these cool illustrations and it's talking about the city in really strange ways. Um, but I didn't have the time to explore it in my first, in my first book. And so I kind of pushed it aside. And so for the second book, I was asked to do a paper um, on the tourist guides. And so I started to work on those and it was for, um, students were going to be in the audience. And so I thought, well, I've got to make something a little bit flashy, a little bit interesting. Let me, let me stick some of these illustrations in. And once I stuck the illustrations into my presentation, of course I had to talk about them. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, I think these illustrations are just as important, if not more important than the guides I'm working with. Um, and that was, so, so I came to the to the analysis of the images really both by accident and after I'd already started the project. Um, but I quickly began to realize that they were, they were the center of the story, um, both because of their vividness and um, their artistic sensibilities, um, their aesthetics, but also because they were, they were really telling a, visual story that I realized had lasting repercussions, um, and really resonated over time, um, until the present. And so, um, so I chose, I chose Salvador because it was, 
it's it's just a, a fascinating city to look at, and I'd been looking at it already. Um, but the images I really stumbled on by accident, and uh, and and quickly realized how powerful uh, a message they they had to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the images in the book are are very powerful, and they you know speak to the main argument of the book, which is that visual images play a central role and an important role in shifting understandings of race and blackness in Brazil. And so in every chapter of the book, you take up a particular set of images for analysis. And I wanted to begin, I guess, with the first chapter where you look at these early photographs from the 1800s to the 19th century, and they depict Afro-Brazilians in various forms of labor. And um, maybe we don't know necessarily, but some of them you know, could be enslaved, um, possibly they could be free, but they do take take place, the pictures do take place, I think, during slavery. And so I appreciated how you, you, you know, you included these images, I guess, as a baseline for representations of blackness, but then I, you also interpreted the images in very particular ways. And so, for example, in, in the images, you would read them uh, for signs of agency, I guess. So we may not have written records from the people depicted in the images, but you read them you know, for signs of agency. And so, for example, on page 46, you you have this picture of a woman and you say her sense of self emerges again in her pose, where although perhaps directed to stand in profile, her sidelong glance indicates an awareness of the photographers and ultimately of the viewer. And so you read these images, you know, for for this, this kind of knowledge of the people sitting there. And so I wondered if you could talk about some of these images or, or your use of these images and, uh, your strategy of interpreting them. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think you've cut to the heart of it, which is agency, right? Um, and and so in using these images, I mean, just to, just to give the listener a little bit of background, I I was looking at um, late nineteenth century photographs that were taken of Afro Brazilians um, who, as you say it's ambiguous whether or not they were enslaved. Um, but the photographers were certainly trying to portray them as enslaved and, uh, with different cues, particularly the, the most obvious one, important one was that many of these people are portrayed without shoes. And that was supposed to be a kind of classic marker of the enslaved was that they were without shoes. Um, now in reality, a lot of these people may have been freed, uh, they may have been urban slaves for hire. Um, they certainly were not plantation slaves. Um, they were not um, enslaved in any, in any kind of rural agricultural setting. Um, but what we have here was a, a phenomenon that was common across Latin America, which was taking photographs of different people um, and using them in very particular ways to kind of demonstrate and um, create hierarchies of the different people in the nation. Um, and so there are there are these genres of, of photography that develop and then they're later turned into postcards where where the photographers were really intent on categorizing people as particular types. Um, and so my challenge in working with these photographs is that they had been 
looked at by historians before and by art historians before um, and kind of cast within that genre, but no one had really taken them apart and and looked at them as closely as I wanted to. Um, And so it was kind of that challenge, first of all, of looking at at something familiar and trying to make new points about it. Um, And so part of Part of what I'm trying to say that's new here is we want to pay attention to when these photographs are produced in terms of the timeline of, of slavery and enslavement. And then the second point is, is exactly about agency is that I think for me, um, in my first drafts of this chapter, I had really emphasized much more the repressive elements of these types and these typologies. Um, and I sent it to the press with that kind of framing in mind. And one of my readers who, uh, is Tamara Walker and and is herself working on a kind of visual history of Afro Latin America, which I think is going to be phenomenal. Um, she really pushed me to think about agency more. And so I went back to the images with a fresh eye and I tried to imagine what did it feel like to be this model, um, in this studio on this day and you know what kind of ways are these people who are called into the studio and what kind of ways are they interacting with the photographer and in what kind of ways are they um perhaps exerting some power of their own within this very unequal power dynamic um and once i started thinking that way it was it was a really uh, fascinating creative exercise to try to put myself in in that position and to try imagine try to imagine um, not just the repression and oppression that's taking place within the studio, which you know of course it is, um, but also where is the resistance? Where is the agency? How are these people, you know, um, making a mark in these images, um, in powerful ways because of their humanity, you know, because of, of their humanity, which despite the photographer's, uh, own wishes, perhaps even, um, the photographer is not able to completely tamp down or exterminate. Um, and, uh, and so I think the the image that I talk about there that you were, you were mentioning, um, it's a, it's a fascinating image because it's, it's one of the few images where, and other historians have really done a lot of this work. Um, and this was Isis Santos in Bahia who had discovered uh, that um, this, this one particular model had been used by uh, two different photographers. Mm-hmm. And so once we know that information, and then I uncovered a third a third photograph uh, with the same model. Once we know that information, we begin to understand, wait a minute, this is a model who's being sought out by various photographers, different times at different moments. Um, And what is she, what is she bringing to the table? You know, what is, what, what's, what is she bringing to the image? You know, the photographers shaping things in, in, their own ways, but what is she bringing to the image? Um, and I think there is then, you know, uh, these, these elements that we can pick out. Um, you know, she's, she's incredibly graceful. She has 
a talent for for balancing a tray of bananas on her head. You know, this is this is not something that I could do. This is not something that any of us could do. This is this is a very particularly talented person who is also able to at the same time carry an infant on her back and and somehow make it look effortless. Um, and so I think when we stop and we think about all of the talents, all of the effort, all of the grace that this woman bring um, to the studios and and we kind of try to read the expressions in creative ways, then we get a little bit more into the give and take that may have been happening in the studio. And we get a little bit closer to the person who's being depicted by the, by the photo. Um, and so there is that tension, you know, I mean, if, of course, if I say this woman has ultimate agency, that's incorrect, right? She, she's, she's limited. Um, but if I say that she's completely oppressed and completely repressed, that's also inaccurate, right? And so it's finding that balance and kind of recognizing the limits, but also recognizing the way in which individuals are pushing up against those limits that I think is, is our task as a historian. Um, and, and so I really enjoyed um, I really enjoyed kind of thinking about those photos because they they uh, they pushed me in new ways to think about that balance of power in and um, and so I'm 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 glad that that comes through. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was it was really interesting to see to to read that then visually as well because in the absence of maybe um, like a written text or some something like testimony something like that. You know, it's just interesting having to excavate that um, and then the way that you did that in the book. Um, so moving, uh, I guess, for, forward in time is uh, you talk about the work of uh, Pierre Verger and, and Cody Bay, and you move in, move into these um, tourist guides that they themselves were had a hand in producing. And one of the artistic influences under which these subjects were working, um, and this might be maybe into the 1930s and 40s, is the um, kind of movement of modernism. And so modernism in art or visual culture means like a break from the past in search of new forms of expression. And you looked, like I said, at uh, Pierre Verger and Cadi Bay. And I was thinking about Pierre Verger in this instance because you notice that modernism is being channeled through this folk tradi- tradition, which seems to be a tension like, with this idea of modernism. And, and I thought, you know, of course, in the book, you have many of Verger's photographs there as well. And his photos, you know, continue to circulate in museums and exhibitions. And so how did uh, Pierre Verger present Salvador and its residents? And um, how does his photography, you know, fit into your, your argument about uh, race and visual culture in Brazil? Yeah, I mean, I think this this story of modernism is is super interesting, um, and I think to some degree, what's happening in Salvador is similar to other places in Latin America, right? So you have Diego Rivera who gets interested, uh, you know, who goes to Paris and learns about modernism in Europe, and then comes back to Latin America and kind of rediscovers an interest in indigenous culture and and portraying peasants and kind of this idealized vision of the folk. And so uh, Verger and Caribe are doing a lot of the same things. I mean, part of the interesting story, of course, is that it's happening 
a bit later than um, some of the first wave of modernism. And, and so there's some interesting dynamics there, which, which um, I think are, are fascinating um, in that you have a kind of a, I'm not going to call it a second wave of modernism in Salvador, but Salvador's modernism is a little bit delayed. Salvador is actually very resistant to modernism. Um, and in fact, the first modernist shows in Salvador were kind of trashed. And I think there was actual vandalism, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then lots of, you know, trash talk about it in, in the press. Um, so modernism, you know, we think of it as, as, kind of an uncontroversial thing, but it was, it was very controversial, uh, at the time. And it was very controversial, especially in Salvador. And so, um, Pierre Verger comes in and is really transformative for Salvador. Um, and, and isn't, you know, inspired by influences within Salvador as well. Um, but he really takes a new role in, um, portraying the city as a city with these deep folk traditions, with um, popular culture portrayed largely as black culture, um, and um, and really making it a city of black people, um, and particularly in the streets. Uh, so this is this is Verge's big contribution. And if we look at what comes before Verge. Uh, it really is striking because before Verge, particularly, let's say, if we look at the tourist promotions, which is kind of an idealized vision of the city as, as people wanted it to be understood. If we look at Salvador's tourist guides, um, the vast majority of them in the early part of the century, the earlier part of the 20th century, they just wanted you to, to notice the modern buildings. They wanted you to notice uh, the trolley cars. They wanted you to notice um, the ports. They wanted you to notice kind of the hustle and bustle of a modern city. And there are no black bodies in this uh, set of images anywhere. And this is this is typical of Latin America. That Latin America really wanted to, to, to kind of be a part of modernity as defined in European terms. And visually that was done through postcards that, you know, played up this, that, you know, as modern in architecture as they could get, as European in architecture as they could get, and really neglected any kind of um, information about the population or um, customs or culture or any of that. And so Pierre Berger is, is one of the ones to really turn this visual language around for Salvador and say, hey, you know what? The city of Salvador is not defined by its modern buildings. It's defined by uh, these Black people in the street, many of whom are performing these traditional forms of labor. Um, and and Pierre Berger is, is just a fascinating character in and of a in and of himself, um, he is a uh, he is a French photographer. He developed a career in photography pretty late in his life. Um, he started around age thirty, and beginning, you know, with with his photography, he began to travel the world. And so he traveled through um, Africa. He traveled through. Latin America with an extended time in Peru. He went to Mexico. He went to the South Seas. 
And in all of these different places, he was engaged in this travel photography that was also tied into um, a, a kind of continued work and continued interest in anthropology and uh, often on expeditions for the Ethnological Museum of, of uh, France in Paris. Um, and so Pierre Verger has this famous quote, which he was, he was used to throwing around um, pretty frequently, which was that when he arrived in Salvador, he didn't even notice that there were white people. Um, and, uh, and he didn't even, he wasn't even aware of their presence until much, much later. Um, and this is, you know, this is his own kind of framing of, of himself, of course. Um, but it, it does speak to his focus in his photographs, which were really, you know, breaking with what had been done before and creating this new kind of romanticized vision of, um, of, uh, life in Salvador and especially, you know, shaped around, um, these, uh, what become really kind of urban types, uh, in the same way that we'd seen in the late 19th century, um, we see these continued echoes of these typologies that get reinforced with modernism and reinforced through the work of Pierre Verger. Um, so the folk for Pierre Verger becomes black um, and it becomes uh, urban, but it's a an urban black folk that is kind of deeply centered in tradition, um, very festive, uh, located outdoors and on the streets. And, and it's tempting, uh, with Pierre Verger, he is, he's really been portrayed as a documentary photographer, um, particularly because his later career went further in that direction. And because he became a, he became an expert in, in Kenamblay and, um, wrote many scholarly works on Kendamblay as a, as a kind of ethnologist and an anthropologist. And so a lot of scholars and, and I think Pierre Verger himself tended to push that documentary focus backwards and portray him as, Oh, he was always doing documentary work. Um, which even as a visual historian, of course, we would, we would begin to question, you know, the, the constructions that are done in that work. But, um, but what we, what I want us to keep in mind is that Pierre Verger was having to pay some bills and he was having to satisfy, um, some, some markets and, uh, and he was an artist. He was portraying his own particular view of Salvador in ways that left out all kinds of other alternatives. You know, we could have had, if he wanted to focus on black life, he could have sought out the black professionals in the city. Um, he could have looked at, um, you know, other kinds of, of um, professions. There, there are multiple narratives here that he could have told, but what the narrative that he wanted to tell and the narrative that his photographs tell is that um, that Salvador was a city really untouched by modern life, and that 
black people there were engaged in a way of life that was that was more authentic. I mean, he saw it in positive terms. That was more authentic and that was um, more more deeply engaged with uh, kind of outdoor living and 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 life outside. Um, and so, if we look, I mean, he produced hundreds of photographs that were published in the Time magazine of Brazil of the, of the era, which was O Cruzeiro, uh, which was an illustrated magazine. And he produced hundreds of uh, photographs of Salvador, more than 200 photographs in the first three years that he was there that were published in O Cruzeiro with this immense circulation um, across Brazil. And in more than 200 photographs, you know, I went through them trying to see if I could find um, any automobiles. Are there any automobiles in his work? Nope. Uh, are there any modern buildings in his work? Not really. Um, is there anyone who ever goes indoors in his photographs? No, also no. Um, and so we began to see how tightly edited his photographs were. Um, and and this is kind of, it's, so the, the chapter on Berger is kind of talking about, okay, how are these, there are tropes that get developed for Salvador and how are they developed and when are they developed? And so Salvador's tropes really get developed by Verger around the ideas of the folk, of a pre-modern way of life, um, and of a black life that has lived largely in the streets. Um, and with Verger, it's, it's very interesting uh, because he, if, if we want to look at his, his images, many of which are really stunning, um, very beautiful, we find ourselves kind of struggling with, okay, what, how do we balance here objectification and respect? Um, and so I think that the primary analysis of Verger up to this point has been that, that he treated populations with respect, that he engaged deeply with the Kendall community. And all of this is true, but I also wanted to call our attention to the way that the population is objectified and, and flattened into this very limited idea of blackness. Um, and Salvador is flattened into this very limited idea of what Salvador is, right? I mean, Salvador has, you know, they it, it was a modern city. It, it may not have been the most, you know, technologically advanced cutting edge city um, in 1946 when he gets there, but it, it was a modern city and you would never know that from his photographs. Right. Um, and so one of the things that his photographs end up instrumental for is kind of building up this idea of a, harmo- a harmonious life that's taking place in Salvador. That's different from the rest of Brazil more, a more modern industrial Brazil, um, and also kind of reinforces this idea of, of unity, cohesion, um, easiness, uh, festivity, all of those concepts, which were critical to Brazil's larger doctrine of racial democracy. So, you know, Brazil was kind of building itself up through the through the 30s, certainly, and into the 40s and kind of peaking through the 50s, um, Brazil was building itself up as we have a racial democracy, all races participate equally, 
we are very festive, um, we are very cordial, um, and we all get along. And so Verger's photography really reinforced that with Salvador kind of serving as the epicenter for this Black um, congeniality that was uh, kind of grounded in an earlier way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those concepts, that those images, um, are, I think are still being recycled and used today in ways that need to be complicated. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things I'm hoping to, that that chapter accomplishes is, is just to point out um, that it is a romantic view and it's, it's a stylized view and it's a particular view that is crafted by a particular vision um, and comes out of, of a particular moment in time. Um, and it's not, you know, what we're looking at with Verger's photo is not a slice of life objective reality, but, but something much more tightly edited. Um, this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Can I I ask you then a follow-up question? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was because that was really great how you talked about you see these echoes of these different themes that were established um, in like in the previous photographs that you talked about. And um, and you see there's these kinds of themes that emerge with these photos, like you said, of the folk and tradition. Festivity is another image that uh, are meaning that that gets associated with the city and with black people in the city. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that. Um, and then, and also you mentioned how, um, black people kind of get consigned also to service labor. And I was wondering what you thought maybe about the implications of these images, because the guides seem to make very little mention of like racism, inequality, or poverty. Maybe one of the exceptions might've been a guide by Giorgi Amato in 1945, but, and maybe you were kind of getting to this. Do you think the fact that many of the visual artists were white or foreign um, or maybe from a, a higher class status, and they're writing about tourism. D- does that inform these themes? And and then also, just what are the implications of of these images that you see? Well, I think that is the interesting question: is why does this imagery become so powerful at that particular moment, and why? And why is it that imagery that sticks to the present day? I mean, I think that's. That's the question which really struck me after doing, after analyzing all of these images, I kept thinking to myself, God, why are these so familiar? You know, these look so familiar. And it's because they've, they've really penetrated the visual iconography in South, in Salvador and also the iconography about Salvador. And so I think there is this, this long lasting legacy of all of these images that I'm looking at here. Um, But in terms of why, I think part of it is exactly, you know, it goes back to kind of the question of modernism, which is that Brazil was modernizing very rapidly in the post-war era 
um, and its goal was to modernize very rapidly. And so I think for a lot of people, this created an anxiety about how fast Brazil was changing and what was going to be lost in the process. Um, And so the flip side of modernization and the flip side of modernism is this kind of new interest in traditions and folklore and the folk um, that get awakened precisely because of the anxiety of of the change around everybody. Um, And so I think Verger is certainly part of of that moment. Um, I mean, he, you know, he he kind of traveled around the world looking for ways of life that were disappearing. Um, And so he, that's, that's part of his focus in Salvador, but that's part of the focus of others in Salvador as well. And so I end up, I end up um, focusing on Verger in one chapter. And then there's another pivotal figure um, who becomes known as Caribe, who's actually Argentinian born. Um, And, And so we have these two white foreigners who end up kind of setting the terms of the, you know, of the visual language of Salvador. Um, But I think they do so in concert with others in Salvador as well. And I think, so I think that their, their foreignness is important because it allows them to come into that city with fresh eyes and say, hey, wait a minute. That you know, there's a powerful black presence in the city, and the white national elite of Bahia, of Bahia um, the white national elite of Salvador, really wasn't interested in hearing that message. Um, wasn't something they wanted to play up, and so I think to some degree, what we have is um, outsiders who come in and prioritize black life in new ways that a national elite was not ready for. On the other hand, um, they also work in concert with modernists within Salvador who supported and and praised and created uh, a fertile ground for the reception of their work. So I think to see them, on one hand, they have this outside perspective, which is critical for prioritizing blackness in this new way. on the other hand, there's no way they would have succeeded in the way they did if they didn't find fertile ground in key Bahian allies um, and in key Brazilian allies and within a larger kind of modernist movement within Brazil that began to be interest began to be interested in those things. Um, and so I think that as much as as much as they're individually bringing a fresh perspective, um, they're also interacting with local interpreters and local supporters who are critical for making their their work um, deeply popular and deeply resonant to Bahians as well. Um, and so I think in some ways, if we see them just as white outsiders, that underplays how powerful and deep a role they came to to hold in Bahian modernist circles and in um, the Bahian visual register. Um, but I think that they, they push the envelope 
uh, a little bit further than a local elite was ready for. And so that's, that's kind of their role is as instigators. Um, now, you know, they're bringing a new priority to black life. Are they doing it in ways that, um, are balanced? Are they doing it in ways that are respectful? Um, you know, I think that's where things get problematic, right? Is when we look at these images, when we look at, um, when we look at Cuddy Bay, for example, he's doing a lot of the same romantic notions of a black urban folk, a festive community, you know, driven by, um, it's outdoor celebrations um, and kind of pre-modern way of life. Well, all of these tropes are coming up over and over again, and they're very limiting. Um, and and none of these visual artists are talking about the daily realities of Black life, which are not always festive and happy, um, but are instead grounded in a deep poverty and in deep levels of illiteracy and low rates of mortality. Um, and we can certainly understand, you know, I think, is it natural that these tourist guides romanticized the city and romanticized, um, black life? It is natural, you know, and, and that's not unexpected, um, that they would do that. But what we what we want to be careful about is understanding how far those romantic notions were from black reality and also how limited those tropes ended up being both for the city and its black residents. Um, And so I think that I think that the fact that Salvador's visual register gets fashioned within the realm of tourism is important uh, because it means that they that people were always engaged in the task of selling the city, you know, selling Black Brazil, um, and we want to we want to keep that element of the kind of marketability um, that that was certainly at the forefront of these artists thinking, um, they were trying to sell the city to others. They were trying to sell their own work. Um, and in the process, they whitewashed a lot of the inequalities that city residents faced and a lot of the very difficult living conditions that Salvador's black majority, um, lived through on a daily basis. Yeah. Thank you. Um, one of the reasons I was really excited about your book and um, excited to talk to you is because I'm seeing a lot more work on the visual in Afro-Latin studies. And um, I myself am working on uh, Black visual culture in Brazil as well, but in Sao Paulo. And I'm an anthropologist, so it's more uh, like more current. But your work seems to be making this argument about the particularity that the visual contributes in that it depicts blackness in the absence of a more mainstream verbal discourse on race. And so, and you also just mentioned earlier, um, I think it was uh, Tamara Walker is writing a book mm-hmm. on black visual um, history in mm-hmm. Latin America. So I wondered um, what you see the visual opening up. What are, what are you thinking about the visual in Afro-Latin studies, um, either in your work or in other work that you're seeing? 
I no, I think you're right. And I'm, I am excited that I think there, you know, there've been some recent conferences that have been thinking more deeply about kind of Afro-Latin representations. Um, and I love that, that people outside the realm of art history, like you and like me are picking up the visual as well, because I think that, that there are, you know, these disciplinary contributions that we can all be making. Um, and I think it's a really exciting time for it. I mean, I think there's, I think there's some momentum building. Um, I think there's been a lot more interest in it. I think there's been a lot more engagement with it. Um, and I think that's really important because uh, for historians, you know, we are guilty of not taking images very seriously a lot of the time. You know, we want to use them kind of illustrate our point, but we can sometimes be a little bit slow to engage with them in deeper ways. Um, and certainly this book kind of was a wake up call to me that I needed to engage with these images and in their own terms, on their own terms, and in and in deeper ways to kind of uncover the meaning within them and try to try to be creative about exploring the meanings that that are, you know, either either that the artist intended or that the artist wasn't anticipating. Um, but I think for Brazil, it's and and for Latin America, this is really a super important arena because you know, one of the the central components of Brazil's racism has been its ability to create a deeply racist, hierarchical society without the need for explicit segregation, right? Um, without the need for explicit uh, discriminatory language in ways that we are very used to in, in studying, um, us racism. Um, and so if you, you know, if you go into, as a historian, if you go into Brazilian archives, you know, looking for, you know, horribly racist language that exposes how deeply racist all of these different authors were, you won't find it. It's silent. Um, and so how do we uncover the racism that is structuring Brazilian society and the racism that did succeed in creating this, this, this deeply unequal society. How do we find that? And I think the visual is one set of sources that, that we haven't taken seriously. We haven't used as much as we could to get closer to those, to those answers. Um, And so we have these silences within the text. Okay, sure. But then, what are the images telling us, right? Um, and I think this is this is a really exciting moment. Um, and I know even you know people are going back and finding even in the earliest indigenous portrayals in Mexico of the Spanish conquistadors. If we look closer, there are there are black figures in those scenes, right? That no one has ever thought critically about. And they're just beginning to be talked about in new ways. Um, and, and so I think there's this visual register where blackness has been, um, you know, just unnoticed and, and not taken seriously enough by historians of all types. Um, and so that's kind of our job right now is to is to think about 
what is the story that we can unravel if we if we take these images seriously and what are the silences that we might begin to fill if we if we look in these images instead of just the text um so i think that's where it's really exciting mm-hmm. yeah this is a really exciting time and and as you said of course we're we're grateful for you know other disciplines have been working in this in this register, of course, like art history, as you said. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like more people are taking this up. Other disciplines are taking this up and producing a very rich kind of field of, of discussion and, and conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so your book is full of images and full of um, pictures from your sources, which I'm sure that people will love as they you know love to see as they read the book. I wondered if you could tell us anything about the archival research for the book. Were there any challenges or any surprises that you encountered along the way when you were doing the research and you know kind of combing through the archives and these sources um, in developing the the project? Well, the archives uh, for modern Bahia are pretty fragmentary and hard to use. Um, so, you know, I was telling you about those unlabeled boxes. <laughs> that's that's the, you know, historians have, have been able to do amazing things with the colonial history of Bahia and even with the 19th, up to the 19th century Bahia. Um, but the 20th century is, is still really in a process of, of being cataloged. And so... All of the archival stuff is is difficult in Salvador um, for the 20th century. The the municipal archive, um, just not very much for the 20th century. A, a great visual archive, actually. Um, they have a, a wonderful visual archive, which is being developed. And, and I think that'll be important for people. Um, but the state archive itself is really wasn't of much uh, help to me in this project. Um so I ended up, and it's partly the nature of the sources because you have these tourist guides and let's say you have a tourist guide that's written in 1962. Why would you keep that, right? I mean, if, if you think, well, that, that information's outdated, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get the new edition. Um, so I think a lot of the older tourist guides were actually, you know, just thrown out and not preserved within Bahia. And so a lot of them, I was actually forced to go through um, interlibrary loan. And they were, you know, there'd be just one library that might hold one of the guides um, somewhere in the U.S. And uh, and I found some of them in, in Bahia as well, and some of them are well represented there. But I actually did a lot of, a lot of research over here uh, in in libraries as well. And so that was kind of the, the advantage for this project was that it was a, you know, a print based project. Um, and, uh, and I found some cool stuff in, in archives as well, but, uh, the, the bulk of the exciting stuff really came from the printed guides. Um, I mean, I'd say in terms of surprises, I think the most exciting part for me was when I was able to start noticing the correspondences between Verge's work and Caribe's work. And the, the two artists had always been seen as the best of friends and, um, you know, that their work was similar because they were in Salvador at the same time and they were both documenting the truth of Salvador. So, of course, they ended up with similar themes. Um, but in working so closely with the images, I was able to finally discover 
oh no, actually Caribe is, you know, working from, in many cases, Verge's photographs. Um, and so when I, when I hit that moment where I was like, wait a minute, I've seen this image before and I run back and I find the photograph that the drawing is based on um, and was able to kind of establish the chronology for that, that was, that was super exciting and that was super surprising because I didn't think I was going to be able to unravel that one. Um, so that was, that was a fun, surprising research moment. Mm. So I think we have taken up um, enough of your time in talking about um, the book. And so just a final question. I wonder now that Selling Black Brazil is out and in the world, um, are you working on um, another project now? Do you have any projects that you're thinking about developing? Um, what's, what's, what, what are you planning on doing now or what's on the horizon for you? Well, I had a project on the history of anthropology that I had started a little bit and then I had to put aside when I started this by Yin project um, on tourist guides. So that's that's waiting for me. Um, and actually, I'd love to talk to you about that at some point. Um, but I also am trying to figure out a way that I can still keep engaged with images because I feel like I've learned so much. I've had so much fun. Um, and I just, uh, I just feel like there's, there's so much to be done and it's so rewarding. Um, so I've, I've got some images that I'm, I'm thinking about, um, that were produced for the, um, basically Brazil's Institute of Geography created a, a kind of, um, series of guidebooks and handbooks that defined regional terms and, Brazil's geography, and they were often illustrated. So I've got some some illustrations there of regional types, which I'm interested in exploring, and and I'm going to try to do something with. Um, but my other goal is to just take a, a big deep breath and and relax a little bit because uh, as we were talking about getting the getting the image permissions, um, I think I have 91 images in the book and get trying to trying to get all of those wrapped up and tied up during COVID uh, was was really its own its own separate book challenge. Um, so I'm I'm ready for a break as well, uh, but but have got a few projects. To, to take up to take up once I once I can catch my breath a little bit. Yes, that is that is very important. I think that many of us have learned the value of a break and rest as well. Yes, and um, yeah, and I look forward to. Uh, hopefully, we can talk about this project on the history of anthropology. That would be great. As, yes, as an anthropologist myself. Yes. So thank you. So I've been speaking with Dr. Anadelia Romo about the book Selling Black Brazil, Race, Nation, and Visual Culture in Salvador Bahia, published by the University of Texas Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.